as important as Ukraine's sovereignty is, what's at stake is more than that. It's about an incredibly important uh, rule in international order that big countries don't get to swallow up small countries just because they can. And I think this is one of those pivotal points where we and all of our allies and partners need to act on that, and that's what we're doing. This is CIA Director William Burns, speaking before the US House of Representatives Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence on March the 8th, almost two weeks into the Russian invasion. Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine has exposed the very threat that many Western officials and analysts have been warning about for years. The fear is that the military modernization undertaken by China and Russia could threaten the West's traditional military overmatch. However, Russia's military action has not evolved as Vladimir Putin may have anticipated. I think, you know, Putin's actions, especially in the last two weeks, and they have been premeditated and they have been savaged, I think should remove any doubt about, you know, the depth of his determination, not just with regard to Ukraine, but in terms of, you know, he, how he exercises Russian power. I would, however, say that what he's been met with since then, first and foremost by Ukrainians themselves and their courage and their heroism and the strength of their leadership, um, has surprised and unsettled him. I think he's been unsettled by the Western reaction and allied resolve, particularly some of the decisions the German government has taken. Um, I think he's been unsettled by the performance of his own military. Welcome to Series 3 of Shepherd Studios' Five Eyes Connectivity Podcast, sponsored by our partner, Viasat. For this series, we look at the origins of the Five Eyes arrangement, consider what it means for military interoperability, and hear how the unique partnership can and should evolve for the future. In this episode, we take a deeper dive into the new technologies that will define the future battlefield, from AI to 5G to cyber. We'll look at the next generation of communications, asking how the Five Eyes can best harness technological advantages while protecting themselves against emerging threats. Although the Five Eyes partnership is traditionally an intelligence gathering arrangement, it also plays a crucial role in linking together the militaries of its member nations. Therefore, the evolving threats and technologies of modern warfare are a vital focus for the Five Eyes nations. These advances are taking place against a rapidly evolving geopolitical backdrop, as shown by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the poor performance of the Russian army during the invasion to date has surprised many. It has also starkly illustrated the importance of secure and reliable communications during complex military operations. This is Dr Thomas Withington, an expert in radar electronic warfare and military communications. I've been I've been completely surprised by how badly Russian communications have uh, appeared to perform. I I would have expected a much stronger performance, let's say. But I think it's interesting because that dovetails in with the seeming lack of performance at the initial stages of the invasion by the Russians. And it's I think a surprising thing for me is, in many ways, the invasion is probably the the most dangerous part of the war for the Russians. This is this is where it it can really go wrong quickly, and if you can't get that sorted at that stage, it does make you wonder where you can go because communications do seem to be inadequate for what the Russians are trying to do. 
And that raises the questions of realistically in the middle of a war that is seemingly absorbing certainly all of the Western military district, most of the Southern Central military district as well. How are you going to modernize and overhaul your communications in the middle of that conflict? I, I just can't see how that can occur. It's almost too late, I think. But, you know, we, we, I, I'd add the caveat. We're, obviously, we're still involved in that conflict, so we don't know the outcome. But, yeah, personally speaking, I've been very surprised with the lack of performance. But how has this lack of performance had an effect on the battlefield? What seems to have happened at the moment is that there have been shortcomings with how Russian military communications have performed, particularly within the army. Uh, and the army does seem to be the dominant service so far in, in this operation. And I think those failings are, or those shortcomings, let's say, come from a number of different factors. A big surprise to a lot of people is how much of the Russian military communications they've actually been able to listen to themselves. I mean, this, this is quite astonishing to an extent. There's a whole band of radio amateurs who are able to intercept Russian signals and they don't even need to decrypt a lot of them. They're just translating what they're hearing, which is being transmitted in clear by Russian cadres. And that's surprising because this is tactically valuable information. And at first, a lot of the thought was that, well, we're able to hear this traffic. It's not encrypted. Is this part of the Russian disinformation effort? Are they just putting traffic out there to sort of throw people off the scent, as it were? But the traffic and its content has then been correlated with what has been happening on the ground. So it's been possible to sort of cross-reference a lot of the comms traffic with what then transpires. So if a particular area is being attacked or a particular aspect of the manoeuvre is occurring. And then that's begged the question as well, why is this seemingly tactically sensitive information being transmitted without encryption? And that raises a series of questions. And my personal perspective is it's probably not down to one specific thing. There may be a confluence of factors that have conspired to make that happen. And I think one of them, one of the problems the Russians may have is that they launched this war in the middle of an overarching modernization of their army communications. So they were doing a wholesale procurement of new radios that were then going to be rolled out across the maneuver force. And they're sort of about the halfway point within that. So the problem you've got is that you've got some units that are using the existing legacy communications and some units that are using the new communications. Russia's experience is a stark demonstration of the need for seamless battlefield connectivity. For the Five Eyes and the West more broadly, this is a vital element of its focus on multi-domain operations or MDO. This concept would connect land, sea, air and space assets and the cyber realm so that communications will be the highest priority. I think it does vindicate to an extent the, the push towards MDO that NATO, it's obviously led by the US primarily, but NATO is picking up on it as, as a whole and NATO members have their own sort of incarnations of it now that are emerging. But I think it does vindicate that. I think it also underscores that the serious importance of technological advantage, I mean, not only in communications, but in a lot of areas, but I mean, in the, in the domain I'm interested in, it, I think it really underscores the need to make communications as secure as humanly possible. And I think from the NATO side of things, that includes really moving forward on things like cognitive radio, for instance, and looking at things like millimetric wave communication. So the kind of quite quite avant-garde technologies that are coming in. 
the fact that Russia has really struggled against the secure communications that Ukraine's been using, and it's been struggling since 2014 on that, and it's not managed to answer that question. I think that underscores that the trajectory to ensuring technological overmatch within NATO and allied nations is working, and one where the investment needs to keep going. Of course, while the Russia-Ukraine war is currently drawing the focus of Western militaries, it's one element of a broader landscape which is impossible to predict. The nature of this environment will demand continued technological innovation. This is Dr Alexei Drew, a senior analyst at the RAND Corporation. Geopolitics can be quite a fickle beast. The, the state of the world in terms of the who's who and the who's doing what is not the same now as it was in the 1940s. There are some similar actors and players on the stage, but there are new ones and there are likely to be continue to be new ones emerging into that kind of that competition at the same level of those initial five partners. And there's a therefore there's a potential that either the relationship breaks down between those members and we did see clashes and um, particularly during the Trump administration towards the end stages between the kind of freedom of movement and sharing of information because of, of some of America's directions of policy. But there's also a risk that you can you could perceive there or, or see there as becoming a competing standard, as it were, that you when you have one alliance of any kind, what tends to happen is an alliance of a, an alternative type for those who aren't allowed into that club develops in response. And it's highly likely that we will see something similar. We've seen movements, for example, between China and Russia towards intelligence sharing and technology sharing. And when we've now seen things like AUKUS, the agreement between Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom to effectively help Australia in transferring technology for security, again, as a balance to other geopolitical concerns in that region of the world, that again is only likely to increase the likelihood of us seeing this rising competition against the alliance. One peer rival looms above the rest, even above Russia. China has rapidly grown in both economic and military strength, becoming a particular concern for the Five Eyes. John Paracini is a senior international defense researcher at the Rand Corporation. China is making great strides. It's been a major a rising power. It's also led them to want to define technology standards to encourage countries to adopt its technology that follows its standards to use its currency for purchases. You can imagine a world where China has worked with many countries, helped build out their infrastructure in a way that those countries cannot be interoperable with, with us. And they, they might only, only be interoperable with a Chinese uh, telecommunications and cyber uh, environment, digital environment. And in that case, the ability for Five Eyes related countries or NATO countries, but Five Eyes at its core to have effective interoperability is really important. It's an alternative model. And indeed, we may be in an environment where there are two large technology competing models and China, to its credit, has really moved out aggressively to use its economic power to define what that world looks like. This is a complex environment, blending economics and defence, the military and the commercial domains. But Five Eyes and NATO nations must pay close attention if they're to maintain a technological edge and secure it for allies around the world. The ability of uh, China to fund the expansion of its technology in developing countries, particularly in Africa, uh, gives them a real advantage. 
I don't see that as an undue threat as long as we compete. But U.S. companies, Western companies, five-eye companies from the five-eye countries have an opportunity here to compete, and we need to do that. In order to get at that level to compete effectively with China, we've got to enter the game, and we've got to have technologies that are attractive at a price point that countries want to have. Uh, we face a real challenge because the Chinese are willing to underwrite many technology adoptions countries, particularly in Africa, which give Western countries, high-value countries, or NATO, because we live in a more private sector market. We're not allowing, uh, we're not having large subsidy government subsidies to support the expansion of private sector technologies in other countries. Cyberspace is one of the critical technological opportunities for the Five Eyes and one of the significant sources of potential threats. Let's turn back to Dr. Drew. In terms of cybersecurity threats, in more broader terms, there, there's all sorts of things um, that could be taken into this account. In terms of the, I, I don't think I have a most significant. I think there are a couple that I think are, are worthy of attention. Uh, one of which is the increasing diversification of actors that are capable of taking offensive action in cyberspace to a, a degree beyond what they used to be able to do. And it's also worth bearing in mind to take this apart a little bit further, that offensive cyber does not have to mean highly complicated and advanced cyber. You can achieve quite a lot with a very low complexity attack. A distributed denial of service attack, for example, is not complex, expensive or hard to do, but it can, at the right scale, have significant impact. And I think we're seeing and have been seeing for quite some time a proliferation of the um, these kinds of means of achieving political goals spreading from you know, the initial parties of the United States, UK, US, Germany, France, etc., to a far wider group. And it's also diversifying outside of just state control. And I think that's another point that I would say is a risk is that we haven't quite understood effectively in the policy space, the implications of the new relationship between the private sector and the state sector and, and national security and international security. We've come to the point that we understand that these technologies aren't produced by states anymore, that they're produced by the private sector. That's where innovation comes from in the most central sense. But I don't think we've actually given enough thought to what that means for what, what power looks like in, in a modern age and, and, and who who can wield it, how should they wield it, and where are the barriers to those, and who should be responsible for setting what the, the acceptable behaviours in cyberspace are. Cyber offers a number of unique qualities as a technological opportunity and threat. This is Craig Miller, President of Government Systems at Viasat. The thing about the cyber domain is how fast it moves. And the things that were yesterday's in the domain that only state-sponsored intelligence agencies could create, the things we call advanced persistent threats. Yesterday's advanced persistent threats, you can buy them for $20 on the dark web today. And so that you see the proliferation of very sophisticated capabilities. And so it's very easy for individuals and even sort of criminal organizations to do things that only intelligence agencies could do just a year or two ago. And so that this sort of arms race of creating defenses and creating behavioral analytics that handle these kinds of threats and the distribution of these kinds of threats, that, that's the sort of key of the cyber warfare domain. And the other thing is adversaries are becoming more and more sophisticated 
at creating systems that make it very difficult to attribute cyber attacks. And so a lot of times you'll see compromised botnets out there launching incredibly sophisticated attacks against infrastructure. And so if somebody's PC who didn't update their virus software and put the bad link on the web, suddenly that PC is compromised. Well, that happens tens of thousands of times every day. And you start to see these botnets launching incredibly sophisticated attacks against things. And it's really hard to trace because it comes back to some old lady's computer in Wisconsin when really three levels behind that, it, it was a state sponsor that was doing it. So the, the proliferation of capabilities, the sophistication of capabilities and the difficulty in attribution because there's so many platforms to launch these things off of make the, the cyber domain. It, it's an incredibly difficult problem. and It's an incredibly fast moving problem. Cybersecurity is also likely to evolve with the development of technologies such as quantum computing. Quantum computing is likely to to be the one which is the greatest risk to cybersecurity in a technical sense, because so much of our basic principles of security is based upon um, critically important levels of encryption and our trust in encryption. And quantum computing offers a potential means where that encryption effectively for those who possess that capability is no longer an issue. And it would significantly undermine quite rapidly should that capability develop rapidly in a single actor it would see a significant shift in power in what could or could not be done. But hopefully uh, we'll get post-quantum computing at the same time, post-quantum cryptography at the same time. So it'll all balance out, but I can hope. The Five Eyes operate in an increasingly complex and dynamic threat environment. Indeed, their technological focus must address not just nation states, but a vast range of quasi-governmental and non-state actors. Paul G. Buchanan, Director of 36 Parallel Assessments, a geopolitical and strategic analysis consultancy, expands on this point. While now the intelligence collection burden is shared by focus on state actors, which remain the primary targets, but a whole collection of non-state actors to include irregular warfare types, i.e. terrorists uh, of many persuasions, But we've entered into the era of hybrid warfare, where the overlap between kinetic operations and non-kinetic operations, between psychological operations and physical operations, is now increasingly blurred. I mean, I, I, I was brought up in my security career at the moment where we transited from black and white conflicts to so-called gray conflicts. Conflicts where, you know, the enemy doesn't wear uniforms, you know, where loyalties are doubtful, where there are no fixed lines, there are no fronts per se. We are now full in that age. And if you think of, for example, the little green men running around in the Ukraine who uh, clearly belong to one side, but, you know, wore no insignia, roamed around, that sort of thing, that's one particular manifestation of hybridity now, of this sort of new form of warfare, well, that has really increased the responsibilities of Five Eyes. These have not diminished. Cyberspace is just one focus of disruptive technologies in which the Five Eyes nations must take the lead in the years to come. Against the backdrop of multi-domain operations, communications themselves will have to evolve. Here's Viasat's Craig Miller. 
The, the next-gen communications, they're, they're going to feature hetero, heterogeneous networks, which is the ability for users to use more than one different type of network. And so the, these are going to be multi-mode, multi-transport, data flow-driven networks. And so if I'm a user and I have a portfolio that might include a government purpose-built network like WGS, a set of commercial networks to include Biosat's network or other commercial networks as well, or even terrestrial networks, I'm going to have to have the ability to make decisions about how I move data and how I respond to adversarial threats against those data. And so, for example, some data might not be as important as other data. And there's some data that I could send over a commercial network with, that might have a, a different level of security than a hardened military network. Some things like nuclear command and control probably want to go only over very hardened, very secure networks. And the ability to decide in real time with automation, what data goes over what network at what time in what geography, that's going to be that orchestration is going to be a key feature of multi-mode networks. And when we talk about that, that's sort of the, the features that you find in software-defined networking. And so these are going to be software-defined data flow-driven networks. And when you have a portfolio of networks and you get into a scenario where the adversary is trying to disrupt your portfolio of networks, you may find that some of those networks are no longer available. And you're going to have to have the ability to dynamically decide, okay, well, network X is gone. I'm going to send my logistics data over network Y and my morale and welfare data. Well, it just goes over the cell phone network or something like that. We don't really care about it. But that ability to dynamically allocate your data, have different data flows, move over different data networks, and then the processing on the back end of that data that's aware of how the how the data traversed what the source of the data was what networks it went over and then make decisions based on not only the content of the data but where it originated from and how it traversed over networks all that together is going to be the sort of next generation communications network another key focus for modern communications is 5g part of its potential strength is that it will soon be ubiquitous so when you have a technology that's everywhere, it, it's useful. And 5G also has some very interesting features that, that can also help make it relevant for military communications. And, and 5G means a lot of different things. It's a, it's a really wide-ranging, all-encompassing standard. And so at the physical layer, 5G includes things like beamforming and the ability to steer beams in a certain direction and not just radiate energy in every direction. That, that's really useful in the battlefield case where if you know you want to talk to someone, you can point the signal right at that person and you're not spraying energy everywhere else. And so it makes it harder to intercept. It makes it harder to geolocate. And so at that level, 5G is useful. There, there's a variety of other technologies that do the same thing. And we, we have systems that do that now. But having a, a widely distributed one with chipsets that are manufactured in the billions that do that is really useful. 5G is also a networking standard. And a lot of the features that I've been talking about in terms of software-defined networking and orchestration and data flow-driven routing, the 5G network standard has a lot of those features. A lot of the same features that are in SD-WAN, like network slicing, which is the ability of video data goes over this network and text data goes over that network, that's in 5G too. And so even if you're not using a 5G physical layer, a 5G networking layer, which is, again, a widely accepted standard and might be a baseline for interoperability among disparate organizations because maybe everyone can agree on 5G, um, that 5G networking standard could be a, a really powerful way to create software-defined networking that's interoperable. 
Viasat has a particular focus on satellite communications. While SATCOM isn't new, the technology has made many advances in recent years. SATCOM is advancing in leaps and bounds over the last few years too. And so you're starting to see, you know, for example, the, the Viasat 3 satellite system is incredibly resilient, incredibly difficult to jam, incredibly high capacity. And that's going to be a useful technology that can be leveraged over peer adversaries. It's going to be hard to stop it from, from working. The proliferated LEO constellations, the commercial proliferated LEO constellations, the, these are fantastic capabilities. They're very resilient. They can be very high performing in, in certain domains. And that's going to help too. And then bringing all that together is really the, the most important part of it because you know you can have a 5G network and you can have a resilient SATCOM network and another resilient SATCOM network, but being able to bring all those together and creating a network that the users can use and is essentially transparent to the user and orchestrates itself in machine time so that the user's data moves over the right network at the right time in the right way is the key to all of this. Dr. Alexi Drew points to foundational technologies that will form the bedrock of next generation systems and digital infrastructure, both in the military and civilian worlds. I think some of these are iterative. You know, we have the process of getting smaller in many cases of miniaturization, semi semiconductors being a, a fine example of this. But there are other foundational technologies that innovate in different ways and can do so in significant leaps and bounds. I think advanced materials is a, is a crucial example of this. Some of the things that we're seeing that we can achieve through creating artificial materials with properties that we have designed for rather than are naturally occurring that we've then created or paired with other naturally occurring elements or, or materials are incredibly, I mean, it's fascinating. It's one of my favorite things to read about once I can get my head around it is that the things that are achievable when you go, well, why should we make do with materials and their features and properties that we find naturally when instead we can create additive manufacturing materials that are self-healing, or we can create materials that are able of conducting power and magnetism in a level that simply does not exist normally on Earth, or that can refract light near perfectly. These are all sorts of technologies that will have vast arrays of implications for all sorts of other end-stage capabilities. The last one, for example, perfect refraction in, from an advanced material that could create the perfect lens. So think satellite technology or lasers or all sorts of things like this. There's others that I've seen that potentially allow for active camouflage and near invisibility from the visible light spectrum. And these are things that, you know, sound sci-fi, but when you're looking at the kind of timelines in the defense and security tend to look at, which is as far into the future as they can, sci-fi and the real life aren't all that separate. So what does the evolution of these new technologies mean for the future of the Five Eyes grouping? And how can its member states adapt? On the cyber warfare front, international partnerships will be crucial, as illustrated by this exchange between US Congressman Joaquin Gastro, General Paul Nakasoni, commander of the US Cyber Command, and Christopher Wray, director of the FBI, during the March the 8th open hearing on worldwide threats. Uh, as you all know, the cyber threat from Russia and other nations is very real, including to our critical infrastructure and our defense systems. Uh, simply put, even our most sophisticated weapons with strong, cyber, strong effective cyber attacks can be neutralized and made ineffective. And so my question is about the status of our cyber alliances around the world. 
How strongly have we developed our cyber alliances, both for defense purposes and, if necessary, for offensive purposes in cyberspace? So, Congressman, I, I think that what you've hit on is really the, the key for the future, these series of partnerships that we have. Uh, and we've seen the partnerships. Uh, I sit next to Director Ray, who has been a tremendous partner in our ability to, to get after some of the cybersecurity threats here in our nation. But it's broader than that, as you had indicated. So we have rich, uh, rich partnerships with, obviously, our Five Eyes partners, a series of other partners within both Europe and the Pacific. I would just add, completely agree with General Akasoni, uh, but I would add that just about every significant uh, major takedown that we've engineered together uh, against foreign adversaries, cyber adversaries, whether they be criminal or nation state, almost invariably involve a whole slew of foreign partners all acting in concert. Uh, and one of the clear lessons from the last few years is that that is the most effective weapon against cyber adversaries is joint sequenced operations. Uh, I like to say cyber is sort of the ultimate team sport. Uh, and we do that with our foreign partners. Indeed, one of the advantages of the Five Eyes is the clear opportunities embedded in the very nature of the partnership and its emphasis on international collaboration and interoperability. One of the keys to interoperability and multi-domain operations is you're going to have some level of standardization. You have to agree on some standard that everybody can use to talk to one another. For example, 5G might be an excellent one of those because we can't agree on any of the existing standards, but here's one that's widely proliferated, used commercially throughout the world, and maybe we could start as 5G as a standard to, to create interoperability. Maybe there's other options, but a, a lot of these new technologies are a basis for standardization. I can kind of bring it all back to a single case study example to demonstrate why interoperability and ally or alliances in, in modern conflict with technology is important. And it all comes down to, in this scenario of data, in order to make the most of data as, as a military component or defense security component, you need a few things. You need the raw data to start with. Um, you need the ability to store the data. You need the ability to process the data. And then you need the ability to actually action on it. There are very few individual states that can bring all four of those to the table at the scale that might be required for a, a large scale kind of regional conflict, even for smaller ones in reality, because those four things can be quite onerous, particularly when you start throwing in the potential for using machine learning or some other form of AI to actually create insights from that data. The processing power you then need to bring in is, is potentially huge as well. So. You need interoperability because you've got effectively four, maybe five components of how to use this thing for a military goal. And you're not going to be getting all of those from one source. A lot of these new technologies are going to be global technologies. And so the Viasat 3 constellation from Viasat's global technology, the broadband networks that many other SATCOM providers are creating, they're global networks. And so it's a network that's available to all of the Five Eye partners anywhere in the world they choose to operate. And well, okay, well, let's use this because we know it works everywhere and we can use it at home and we can use it out in the field too. And so, so these global highly standardized capabilities are great ways for the partnership to work more closely together. While such cooperation is complex, there are clear advantages to collective investment in the technological progress. This is Dr. William Stoltz, Senior Advisor for Public Policy at the Australian National Security College. I think definitely there's been a recognition that greater joint 
investment initiatives are really important here that agencies in the Five Eyes partnership need to start pooling resources, sharing insights and new information around these technologies and where possible undertake kind of joint investment initiatives. And I think we've already we've already kind of seen a bit, a bit of that begin with some of the joint capability funds that have been established. I suppose in terms of, again, with establishing um, or integrating the private sector into that process, it's about identifying suppliers that are going to be trusted and can be trusted for the life of a capability investment. And that's that's obviously a little bit tricky when you're trying to negotiate that across five different jurisdictions. Of course, the five eyes of you know common law countries with a lot of similar values and similar legal systems and similar strategic interests, but nevertheless, finding business entities that can be trusted by the five and work across the five on projects that are potentially decades long is quite a challenge. One essential element is the need to build alliances with industry. This will allow Western nations to tap into the sheer potential of the defence industrial base. I think the days where, particularly for the intelligence community at the core of the Five Eyes, the days where that community had a monopoly of the essential technology innovation in order to perform things like surveillance, but then also increasingly activities in the cyber domain, the days where they had a monopoly over that technology are well and truly over. And so partnerships with especially trusted entities in the private sector are are essential now. And we saw in the, the speech recently given by the head of MI6 in the UK an acknowledgement that partnerships with industry now have to be much deeper and they have to be more than just a kind of transactional client type relationship. They, they do need to be a bit more in, integrated and a bit more trusting. I guess it'll be interesting to see how agencies evolve to actually do that, but at least there's an acknowledgement at the leadership level that 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 relationship needs to become much more integrated. Which brings us to the question, what does the future hold? With rising peer rivals and continued threats from non-state actors, should we be pessimistic? Or does the collaborative potential of the Five Eyes partnership provide a clear cause for hope? For Viasat's Craig Miller, industrial advances could prove critical, particularly in the commercial domain. One way to look at this is the state of the art in, in many technologies you know, 40 years ago, it, it was the military and the commercial world was informed by military technologies. That's flipped. A lot of times military technologies are now informed by cutting edge technologies that are developed for commercial uses. And so I think we're going to continue to see that. And so when we when we see networks and when we see data processing and we see, you know, cloud based features, th those are those are commercial features. And so th those are things that the military can leverage commercial technology leadership in. And so leveraging what is being done commercially is how you can be, you can still be at the state of the art. And that, that's a way you can stay ahead of your adversary too, because our, our commercial sector is ahead of our adversaries, commercial sectors and leveraging those commercial capabilities is a way to stay ahead. It's also a way to, to close the spending gap. In the past, we were able to outspend sometimes by many orders of magnitude the, the people that were our adversaries. That's not going to be the case. You know, in the next 30 years, we're going to be facing an economy that, that may be larger than ours. And so the ability to leverage the trillions of dollars that are being spent in commercial research and development, which is many, many times the defense budget of all the Five Eyes nations 
put together, being able to take that research and development budget and that innovation and apply it to defense problems, that's a way that you can sort of still create that economic advantage. While technology will be crucial, human intelligence remains a vital advantage. William Stoltz believes the Five Eyes must retain a core focus on its people as it adapts to a changing world. I think we're actually heading in the opposite direction. I think we're actually going through somewhat of a renaissance of human intelligence, or at least what you might call human-enabled signals intelligence, in the sense that the cyber domain, particularly with the proliferation of things like end-to-end -end encryption, kind of mass surveillance methodologies, and even things like biometrics, they're meaning that it's harder for human sources to communicate with their targets and engage with their targets in some settings. But what it's also meaning is that we're coming up against the issue of going dark in terms of digital communications. And so where once upon a time it may have been possible to remotely intercept the communications of someone communicating over a mobile network or something like that, we're increasingly moving into a space where you need someone on the ground to help initiate that signals intelligence. So for example, you, you need a person to be able to get onto the device to then enable the interception. So it, it's a fusion of the two, I think. Um, and I think that the Five Eyes network is really going to be a place where we see quite a lot of innovation in how intelligence tradecraft is exercised in, a, in an environment where it is going to be increasingly difficult to reliably intercept digital communications, but there's nevertheless going to be a growing demand to understand the human element. You know, the human decision maker will always be the centre of intelligence. That's not going to go away. There is always going to be a place for a person in the room understanding the human relationship, that sort of thing. Militaries are fully aware of the growing and multi-layered threats they face and are working with companies such as Viasat to prepare for the future. That's what we're hearing is that, you know, this is of paramount importance. And, you know, there's examples of some geopolitical things that are probably in the news today that we've all heard about that we recognize we don't have the capability to service those if something flared up in those places. And so, you know, what could we deploy on a moment's notice? How could we connect more people? How could we connect, you know, thousands or millions of units at scale fast? And th those are the type of things they're asking for. And, and so th this is you know, these are commercial internet-like capabilities that they're asking for. It's like, how do I connect a million people? That type of thing is, is that's out there. That That's what they're asking for. And that's what Viasat as the sort of confluence of a commercial internet provider and a, a defense partner for 30 years, we have the ability to sort of bring those things together, bring them together securely and deploy massive networks at scale that are going to solve some of these problems. The bottom line is that in today's world, data wins conflicts. It's not ships, it's not airplanes. The ability to process data from thousands or even millions of sensors, move it around securely, understand which data is real, which data is trustworthy, which data isn't trustworthy, process that, make decisions on that, and then move the intelligence from that to the right place where it needs to go. That's that's what's going to win the next conflict. And whoever does that the best and whoever does that the fastest is going to have the ability to predict what the adversary is doing or deny the adversary certain capabilities. And that the networking that, that we've been talking about, the interoperable networking and the cyber capabilities 
and the flexibility to move across domains and move across networks in machine time, that all underpins the ability to collect, process, exploit, and disseminate data. And all, all those things together is what's going to win the next conflict. The Five Eyes Connectivity Podcast was created by Shepherd Studio in partnership with our sponsor Viasat. A big thanks for their support. Thanks to everyone who gave their time to support the project. The Five Eyes Connectivity Podcast was produced by Tony Skinner and Jack Austin, with research and interviews by Damien Kemp, script writing by Jared Cowan, and audio edits by Naomi Di Stefano. Until next time.